as we pick up this morning's passage, midway through chapter 17 of, of Luke's gospel account, keep in mind, if you're around last week, you'll recall this, that Jesus has just directed his attention to his disciples with a series of teaching, teachings having to do with the nature of what it means to follow him, to submit to, to his lordship, discipleship, with a focus, uh, looking back to last week, on forgiveness, faith, and obedience, among other things. Closing out that particular moment of teaching, you'll recall, with a reminder that we have nothing to boast about as it pertains to our obedience. That if we manage to, to live lives of perfect, obedient righteousness, we've simply done what, what we're supposed to do. Our absolute best falls short of what God deserves from us. And with that, the silliness of the notion that we could somehow put God in our debt. The gospel declaring that we are unworthy servants with Jesus himself being the only worthy servant, Philippians chapter two, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, that we might be counted worthy in the eyes of God. It's with that in mind, if you pick up verse 11 of chapter 17, Luke tells us, on the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. Luke reminds us right out of the gate of where we are in his gospel account, namely on the journey to Jerusalem with Jesus, the city in which Jesus' very own words would be fulfilled, the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah. At this point on the journey out in the wilderness between Samaria and Galilee, where there surely would have been a, a societal outcast or two, which helps to explain, verse 12, that as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. This is not the, the first time that we've encountered a leper in Luke's gospel account. I'm reminded of the, the man full of leprosy back in chapter 5 who saw Jesus, fell on his face, and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It's one of the most visible depictions in Scripture of what it means to come to the Lord in a posture of spiritual poverty. If you read through the Mosaic Law, and we've talked about this before, uh, Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46 say, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! And he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. I can think of no more humiliating or lonely life than the life of a leper. And coming remotely close to others, a leper had to shout out, unclean, unclean. Not whisper it, shout it loud enough so that those in close proximity could hear him. So as to warn others of, of the danger of that proximity. If a leper was upwind, he had to remain at a distance of 50 yards from others, which gives you an indication of the stench of the disease. In the words of the famous historian uh, Josephus, lepers were treated as if they were, in effect, dead men. Treated not solely on the basis of their physical condition, mind you, but also what others believed to be their spiritual condition. There were stories in Israel's history of, of people having received leprosy as a judgment for sin. You have Miriam back in Numbers chapter 12. Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26. Gehazi in 2 Kings chapter 5. 
so that it was assumed that if you had leprosy, it was due to some sort of personal sin on your part. And you were treated as such by those who perceived themselves to be righteous. Coming back to this morning's passage, you can just hear the humiliating cries of these leprous men shouting from a distance, unclean, unclean, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. The 10 of them likely the only community that they have as it stands, having been ostracized by the rest of society. The crowds perhaps wondering what would possess such men to to violate societal norms and coming near the city gates with, with such a disease. They do in fairness act a little more in accordance with expectations and standing at a distance from Jesus unlike the man in chapter 5. These men, in the irony of the divine, showing us how to obtain true healing, namely a self-awareness and a self-abandonment that cries out to Jesus for mercy. You see it at numerous points in the various gospel accounts. Fully aware of these men of their condition, their, their need for cleansing, the cruelty of society only helping in that regard. Desperate for a hope outside of themselves, unlike the self-justifying scribes and Pharisees as we walk through this great story. Going back to the end of last week's passage, verses 7 through 10, posturing themselves as servants, these men, and crying out to Jesus as master. Not believing God owed them anything, rather desperate for mercy. Luke tells us, verse 14, When he, Jesus, saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. Notice that Jesus responds differently here than he did with the the man full of leprosy back in chapter 5. There we were told that, that Jesus stretched out his hand and touched the man, likely the first human contact that that man had experienced in a long time, having lived in loneliness and in isolation outside the camp for who knows how long. And with that, back in chapter 5, Jesus' words, be clean. The man's diseased body transformed in an instant as cleanness reached out and touched the unclean. The healing touch of Jesus, who alone has the power to make people whole and clean. Here in chapter 17 of, of Luke's gospel account, now 12 chapters later, notice that Jesus doesn't approach the 10 leprous men, nor does he reach out to to lend them a healing hand, to touch them, to heal them. Rather, he tells them to, to go and to show themselves to the priests. Coming back to the book of of Leviticus, much of that section I referenced earlier has to do with the role of the priest in diagnosing the condition of those with leprous symptoms, meaning that the priest acted as a sort of health inspector with the authority to pronounce leprous men and women clean and unclean. In the one case, sending them outside the camp if they were unclean. In the other, restoring them to the community from which they had been outcast if they were pronounced clean. As you can imagine, many within the community, and and we would find ourselves here too, I would venture to guess, would have been skeptical of a leper re-entering society. Are we sure about that? So the, the community put a lot of trust in the priest's word of affirmation. Coming back to this morning's passage, Jesus puts the faith of these men to the test in asking them to act as though they've already been healed. 
Going back to last week, remember the disciples have just asked Jesus to increase their faith, having come to the end of themselves in light of his many difficult teachings. To which Jesus responded there by declaring that faith as small as a mustard seed, it's sufficient if the object of such faith is the God for whom nothing is too difficult. Will these leprous men respond in faith, trusting in Jesus, God in the flesh, for whom nothing is too difficult? And the answer is yes. Verse 14 goes on to say, And as they went, they were cleansed. The ten men do, in fact, step out in faith and begin making their way to the priests, not knowing when healing would come, but trusting that it would nonetheless. And somewhere along the way, healing came. Perhaps instantaneously in the blink of an eye, perhaps gradually seeing their bodies go through a great transformation. Luke doesn't give us that detail, simply telling us that as they went, they were cleansed. One detail that he does give us that he means for us to take notice of is that Jesus has the divine power and authority to heal without so much as being near these men. As we saw in the healing of the centurion servant back in chapter 7. He goes on in verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Imagine with me for a moment these ten men collectively seeing their leprous bodies healed, walking along, looking over at the other nine, looking down at your own skin, seeing transformation happen right before your very eyes, overwhelmed with joy, their walk perhaps becoming a trot, a jog, knowing that, that the pronouncement of a clean bill of health awaits, which will allow them to reunite with their friends, their loved ones, It's far greater than any 10-day, 5-day, 14-day quarantine we're talking about here. Soon able to, to hug their wives and children again. Soon able to worship publicly with the rest of the community. And yet, Luke tells us, one of the 10 stops in his tracks. I love my wife. I love my kids. I miss the community that I've been apart from for so very long. But Jesus just made us clean, guys. I have to go back. I have to tell him that I'm grateful. Again, going back to last week, this is a man who understands what it is to receive mercy from a God who owes us nothing. As opposed to the many who believe that we can put God in our debt. And so the man turns back, praising God with the same loud voice that had grown accustomed to shouting, unclean, unclean. Using those same worn out lungs to now declare, look what God has done. For me, of all people, undeserving as I am, what mercy. And upon finding Jesus, We're told that the man falls at his feet in humble gratitude, unconcerned with what anyone else around him thinks. Like the sinful woman forgiven back in chapter 7. 
You recall in that instance that the woman wept a pool of tears big enough to wet the Savior's feet, which led her to publicly uncover her hair and let it down, an act considered scandalous among respectable women at the time, revealing to us something of her unconcern with public opinion as she fell at the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with her hair, kissed them. And then as if that weren't enough, She proceeded to take an alabaster flask of perfumed oil that she had in her possession and poured the oil on Jesus' feet. An incredible act of not only sacrifice, but humility, as such an anointing was typically reserved for a person's head. Taking on the the menial task of a slave in anointing Jesus' feet. Caught up in a moment of worship, pouring out not only her perfume, but her heart. A woman who knew the hopelessness of her debt before God. A debt she had no ability to repay. Desperate for mercy. Poor in spirit. But she also knew that Jesus is mighty to save. Offering forgiveness to the vilest of sinners. Believing that Jesus could forgive her many sins. That God's grace in Jesus Christ was bigger than her laundry list of improprieties. Caught up in a a moment of extravagant love and worship, which is what extravagant healing and forgiveness compels. Coming back to this morning's passage, we see something very similar in the response of the man who turned back. Humbly fell at the feet of Jesus in thanks and praise. As if that in and of itself weren't shocking enough, Luke goes on to tell us in verse 16... Now, he was a Samaritan, first and only man among the ten to give thanks and praise to Jesus. It's the last man any Jewish person would have likely expected. A Samaritan, the refuse of society. We talked about this before. It was Samaritans who uh, opposed the rebuilding of the wall around the city of Jerusalem in Nehemiah and uh, Ezra's day. It was Samaritans who built a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem in Mount Gerizim. It was Samaritans who denied the validity of much of the Old Testament. It was Samaritans who went so far as to mix paganism and Judaism. One of the greatest insults that the Jews could think to hurl at Jesus. John chapter 8 verse 48. He called him a demon-possessed Samaritan. As if demon-possessed wasn't enough of an insult. Let's just heap Samaritan on top of it. The hatred was so bad that... Many Jews, and many of you know this, would bypass Samaria on their way to Galilee in order to avoid Samaritans altogether. They wouldn't be caught dead where Jesus is right now. Even going so far as to to pray that, that God would remember Samaritans in the resurrection. Or wouldn't remember, I should say. This man, the one who turned back, was doubly leprous in a sense the refuse of Jewish society on two different levels. Here, shockingly, and it's not shocking enough to us because we're so distant from the story, from the culture. Shocking nonetheless that the one prostrate at the feet of Jesus, the one who turned back, is a Samaritan man. It's as shocking as the parable of the good Samaritan, going back to chapter 10, where Jesus declared that it was neither the priest nor the Levite who was the hero of that now famous story, but rather a Samaritan man. To the shock of the lawyer to whom Jesus told that particular parable, you may recall. 
Remember where this story Luke's telling is headed. Salvation and wholeness through the ministry of Jesus for Samaritans too. I'm reminded of the the Gentile centurion back in chapter 7 at whom Jesus marveled for his faith. Remember that guy? There are only two accounts in all all the Gospels of marveling on Jesus' part. He marveled because of the unbelief of those in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth. And he marveled at the faith of the Gentile centurion in chapter 7. A faith like nothing Jesus had found in all of Israel. Not only a man of power, the centurion, seeing his great need for Jesus' help. Not only a man of uh, society's decency, categorically, seeing his own unworthiness. But, a, but a, a man believing that Jesus commands with an authority that must be obeyed. Which is not to say that there was no faith in Jesus expressed by the Jewish people. There were many in Capernaum, among other places, who believed in Jesus for sure. But the Gentile centurion's trust in Jesus and declaration of his lordship, it, it was different. It was different than anything Jesus had ever seen before. An example of Luke's progressive development of the theme of Jesus as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, going all the way back to chapter 2, verse 32. Coming back to this morning's passage, now he was a Samaritan, the one who turned back. Shocking, to say the least. And then Jesus answered, verse 17. We're not 10 cleansed. What's going on here? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? I'm reminded of that scene back in chapter 4 in Jesus' hometown synagogue of Nazareth. Where he was dishonored among his own people. Responded by taking them back to the, the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Both of whom God used those two men to show his grace to outsiders, to foreigners. In ministering to the the widow of Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. Both of those two people having come to the end of themselves. If you go read their stories in the Old Testament. Unlike those in that small town synagogue who were blinded by their own self-sufficiency and pride. It's a a sobering reminder, and we've talked about this before as we've studied this book of the Bible, that there are many who believe themselves to be on the inside who desperately need to be one to Christ. That there are many in the church who have never truly come to the end of themselves, who have never truly come face to face with the hopelessness of their sinful condition. In the words of one scholar, Those most in need of mercy and grace often know it the least. Perhaps even having received a healing somewhere along the way. A circumstantial fix in life. Like the nine who refused to turn back. I mean, after all, Jesus did say in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That there are those for whom even a resurrection from the dead won't be sufficient. I mean, one might argue, and I thought about this when I first looked at this passage in preparation for this morning. One might argue that the nine were doing exactly what Jesus commanded them to do in going and showing themselves to the priests. What's wrong here? 
And yet Jesus indicates that only one gave praise to God. Here commending the man having turned back in humble gratitude and praise while expressing something of a disappointment in all the others. Verse 19. He said to him, to the man who turned back, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. What does that mean? What is Jesus saying here? Thought he was already made well. What did Jesus say back in chapter 7 to the forgiven woman in the house of Simon the Pharisee? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's the exact same phrase verbatim in the Greek that's used here. Your faith has made you well. It's the language of salvation. Literally in the Greek, your faith has saved you. I'm reminded of the men who who dropped their paralytic friend through a roof, chapter 5. Remember that? In order to bring him to the feet of Jesus, that when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Jesus looked up at the, the men peering through the open roof and down at the man lying on his mat. And in doing so, he stared into the eyes of faith. And he declared the sins of the paralytic to be forgiven. Not only an astonishing declaration, but a greater gift. The greatest gift, in fact. A public declaration that Jesus' kingdom work is not solely having to do with healings and exorcisms and circumstantial fixes, but the deliverance of souls from the paralysis of sin. Coming back to this morning's passage, the once leprous man, think about this, this is critical. The once leprous man wanted something more than a healing that was skin deep. His humble gratitude and outspoken praise evidences of saving faith. Where do you and I find ourselves in this story? With the one who turned back or among the other nine? And I don't so much mean as it pertains to Luke's progressive development of the theme of Jesus as a light for revelation to the Gentiles, though that matters in this story, but rather the disposition of our hearts toward Jesus. Are we with the one who turned back? Do we truly want something more from Jesus than a healing that's skin deep? As I've alluded to, there are a lot of people in our backyard, in our context, perhaps in this room right now, perhaps this is you who've looked at Christianity as if Jesus is a stepping stone to something greater than Jesus, as if Jesus' job is to pull out his checkbook and sign the check for our idols, for our circumstantial fixes. Does Jesus love to heal what's broken? Yes and amen. It's a part of the story. But there's a healing that he offers that's so much bigger than the circumstantial fix that's momentary for our lives. He offers us forgiveness. He offers us mercy. Are we with the one who turned back? 
Do we truly want something more from Jesus than a healing that's skin deep? One of the ways we'll know the answer to that question is future for many of us. When everything comes unraveled, you still with Jesus? For some, perhaps today is the day of salvation. The day to repent of your sins, to turn in faith to Jesus for forgiveness. Crying out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on me. I was with the ten. I was, I was a part of the beginning of the story. That's, that's my testimony. But I never came back for true healing, true forgiveness. The story of the leper, it shows us our need for the healing touch of Jesus, who alone has the power to make us whole and clean, the power to heal and restore our souls, bringing cleansing to the leprous stain of sin, you might say. That yes, our our sin leaves us outside the camp, unclean, alone, our spiritual condition far worse than the physical one described in Leviticus 13, And yet, that's not where Jesus leaves us. He himself would go on to suffer outside the gate, Hebrews 13, 12, in order to sanctify us through his own blood. It's the gospel. That's where this great story's headed. As we'll soon see in the book of Luke, Jesus would be led outside the city of Jerusalem to Golgotha, where he would bear the leprosy of our sin in his body on the tree that you and I might be made clean. His blood bringing us, get this, not just inside the camp, but into the holy places. We have reason to give thanks, to give praise in response to the healing that we found in Jesus. Does that stir your heart at all? As the author of Hebrews goes on to say, Chapter 13, verse 15, through him, through Christ, then let us continually, continually, continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Through Christ, continual praise. Colossians 3, 17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks To God the Father through him. Continual thanks through Christ. Continual praise through Christ. Humble gratitude. Outspoken worship. Evidences of saving faith showing itself authentic. Many of you are probably familiar with the ACTS acronym for prayer. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We've used that acronym as a church at times along the way. Talked about this with a few brothers and friends in our church that um, that acronym reveals how it falls short when you actually practice it each and every time. Because when you're meant to adore, you can't help but also confess and give thanks to the Lord and, and cry out in, in, in a cry of supplication, Lord, would you help me to adore you more? When you're caught up in confession, you can't help but acknowledge and adore who he is in his perfect holiness and righteousness 
and give thanks and praise for the God who forgives and cry out in need for the Lord to further sanctify you. See what I mean? It all bleeds together. It's really hard to compartmentalize those things. And yet, I do still think there's value in the acronym, and here's why. Because it reminds us not to forget to adore and thank God. Right? We're, we're quick to run to the Lord with the category of supplication in front of us. Here are our needs, Lord. We bring them before you, and that's a good thing. It acknowledges dependence and poverty of spirit. Perhaps we're inclined to confess our sin to the Lord, that we might feel something of his closeness, his nearness again. Man, adoration and thanksgiving, I would argue those get third and fourth place. Maybe sometimes a participation ribbon at best in the Christian life. And so that acronym, it helps in a way. It reminds us not to forget those two things. In the words of one scholar, we have short memories in magnifying God's grace. Maybe that's why the Apostle Paul tells us, 1 Thessalonians 5, to rejoice always, to give thanks in all circumstances. Like, don't stop praising God Don't stop thanking God. Don't let your short memory get the best of you in magnifying his grace. No, always be doing those two things. I get the sense that, and we're not told this, but that the leper didn't come in and in this compartmentalized way, fall at the feet of Jesus and go, thanks and praise are yours like a Sunday service, and then just disappear and go live his own life the way he wanted. No, this is a man that for the rest of his life, continued to give thanks and praise to Jesus for what happened in his life. My prayer, and and I mentioned this earlier, and this is where the challenge is, this isn't novel information to us. Thanks and praise to God? Obviously, we need a work of the Spirit here. We're desperate for a work of the Spirit My prayer is that we would be a people like the man who turned back, who magnify God's grace, who in all circumstances fall on our faces at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And it's something that requires practice on our part to get there so that there's a fluency about it, right? My guess is that most of us don't walk around these days thinking about Subject and object placement in a sentence as those sentences are coming out of our mouths. We, we don't think about verb paradigm charts as we're talking to each other. It's fluency for us, right? I would venture to, to guess that thanks and praise operate in that way in some sense. That perhaps we need to just carve out some time to thank the Lord. Figure out what that might look like to praise the Lord. Figure out what that might look like to build it into the rhythms of our life, those rhythms of grace that we might find ourselves, if we haven't already found ourselves here in this place, that we might find ourselves in a place where praise and thanksgiving are fluency to us. Again, that's what Luke's after, right? He's, He's not after 
this, this sort of fencing in of, of the checking of the boxes, as I've said before. No, he's after a song in the hearts of his people. He's after a dance. That's what Luke's aiming for. He's trying to get us fluent in the kingdom. And so I pray that for us. I pray that we would use these last few minutes together for that very purpose. We got about 10 minutes, 15 minutes. It's a good practice session. So I just encourage you, on the other side of my closing us out in prayer, as James comes back up and leads us in worship through song, to sit for a moment and to give thanks to the Lord. To sit for a moment and give praise to the Lord, whatever that might look like. And to go further than circumstantial fixes, though that may be a part of of what that thanks and praise looks like. To go to the deepest place of thanks and praise for the soul work that's happened in your life because of Jesus.